Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. That verse said, My life is in your hands. And our call to confession... Psalm 119, that was Psalm 63, but 119, let me read it. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, the, the ruin of a young man, or any man or woman, is either by living with no rules at all, or following false rules, lies, we call them, and certainly we hear plenty of that in the media today. The verse says we should take heed according to God's rule. We should walk by scripture rules. How do we learn them? By coming here this morning, I think we'll hear a lot. And then every day as you open your Bible, there is God's rule. To doubt our own wisdom and strength and to depend on God is proof that we really desire holiness that's sincere. God's word is a treasure worth laying up in our hearts. The word in our hearts will oppose sin with God's precepts. The word in our hearts will oppose our lustful desires with God's promises. Let this be our plea our prayer of confession now with God to teach us the statutes and ask him to hide them in our heart that we might not sin against him. Let us pray. Father, we come before you renewed, refreshed, strengthened. Thanks for the reminder of your gospel that by it our sins are forgiven, and that we are righteous before you. Let this be our motivation, that you sent your Son to restore us to you, to hear your word, to learn and grow in you. We pray that your Spirit apply these truths to our lives and bring you more glory each day. We pray that you be with us as the sermon is preached, that we can clearly hear that you are speaking to us from this pulpit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in for our second sermon in the Gospel of Mark. So let me ask, how do people respond when a new president is elected? This has become very important here in a few months. Some people celebrate, some people cheer, some think they're ushering in a new age. Others cry in the streets, believing that he will bring an end to the nation. Now, much of this is simply political theater, right? And most of the time, the election doesn't bring either a paradise or a dystopia, right? It's not that big. But rarely, if ever, is there no response at all with the coming of a new leader. There's always some reaction. Last time we saw how Mark starts his gospel by showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Also, that John the Baptist came preaching baptism, preaching repentance. We also asked the question, as to what is a or what is the gospel. 
right? In the context of Mark, we discovered it's the gospel of the kingdom, right? That is, Jesus is king, and Jesus is bringing about a kingdom. So with this in mind, what should our response be? If we respond when a president is elected, what is our response to the king of kings coming to earth? If there is a new kingdom, if there is a new king, namely Jesus, then what do we know about this Jesus? What do we know about this king? And what is our response? How do we react with this knowledge in mind? This choice is very important. Not just for you, not just for me, not just for us here, but for the whole world. What are they going to do with the new king, Jesus Christ? What kind of king is he? And how do we respond? Last time we discussed some introductory material about the book, and then we looked at the first eight verses. We learned that it's written by the disciple of Peter, John Mark. It was likely written before the death of Peter. And the original audience was a Gentile church facing persecution against the Roman Empire. We also saw how Mark thought this was, quote-unquote, the beginning of the gospel. Then rooted this in the quotation of three Old Testament prophecies. Each of these prophecies tell of a forerunner before the coming of God himself. I am coming, but before me comes another. And each of these quotes was to a group of Jews in trouble. Right? Either escaping the Egyptian empire before entering the promised land, or before the exile into the Babylonian empire, or as they're facing persecution from Assyria. Right? In each of these instances, these Jews are in trouble. When we saw last time, it was John the Baptist who was this forerunner before the coming of Christ, before the coming of the Lord, the very Son of God. And Christ isn't a last name. It means anointed, Messiah, chosen by God. And this would be an encouragement to those first century Christians. Because if God can preserve his people before Egypt and Assyria, he can preserve them against the empires in Mark's day. Right? And he can do it for us today. So let's read the text which we'll be looking at. Uh, Mark 1, 8 through 15. John the Baptist says, I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, You are my Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and with the angels were ministering to him. And now John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming a gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay. I have a confession to make. I promised I was not going to talk about baptism. You can't escape it out of this passage. But I'm forced here to talk about baptism. So verse 8, we looked briefly at last time. right? We, we saw that John the Baptist was out baptizing and calling people to repentance. right? Comparing his work to the ministry of Jesus. But it's kind of a transition verse. 
right? You have John the Baptist preaching, and then Jesus comes, and then John is arrested, right? There's a transition taking place here. Comparing the work and ministry of Jesus to the work and ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing people with water, but Jesus was able to do things that John could only dream of. He could do things he couldn't ever do. Jesus can cleanse and save your souls. He could baptize people with the Holy Spirit. I said last time that this was a language of conversion, of real spiritual change in people's lives. Right? John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Right? So by being born of water and Spirit brings you into this kingdom. And this is the work of the Spirit. So baptism is less of a work that you do. It's less of a work that even the pastor does. It's really more of a gift from God bestowed to his church through his ministers. Baptism is a gift from God to us. It is given to us by the Spirit. And this baptism, it changes our allegiance. It changes our identity. Look at how Paul uses this concept of spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians 12. For just as one body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though, me, are, though are many, there's just one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. By baptism, we are placed into the church. We are placed into the body of Christ. And we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve his church. And this is irrespective of your social standing. We belong to the church in this world, Greek or Jew, slave or free, etc. It doesn't matter. We are now part of Christ's kingdom by faith. And Paul is writing this to a single congregation, Corinth, right? And with each of these types of people in it, Jew and Greek, etc. So Paul is not commanding division. Rather, he is, he is promoting unity. He has no problem with diversity as long as it is united in the truths of the scripture and the truths of the king and the kingdom. John the Baptist is telling us that by the power of Christ, we have new membership under the protective and watchful eye of Jesus Christ himself. And we are now his people to whom those promises are to us that he will protect us and place us in a kingdom that will defeat all earthly empires. We are called and empowered to save faithfully in this church. And being in Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we will get to live with Christ for all eternity. Yes, now, but also we, we will also die and go to heaven, and eternally after the final judgment, we get to be with him now, and we get to be with him forever. And this is why the church historically held to a doctrine called extra ecclesia nullis salus, the Latin, which means literally, outside the church, there is no salvation. When you are baptized, you are put into the church, and the church is where Christ says he will protect his people. That's where he ordinarily works. If you are truly saved, then you should want to be with his people, worshiping him in his kingdom, in his church. Yes, there are those who never enjoyed the benefits of church membership. 
Right? They're missing out on God's blessing of the church, such as the repentant thief on the cross. And yes, God's sovereignty and his grace can extend even outside the church visible. But the normative, ordinary experience is that God graciously uses baptism to place you into the church, and you are under the Lord's protection there. And it really is kind of a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient heresy to say that the spirit is good and the physical is bad. Because you think that water baptism or visible church membership is important. Since you have an invisible baptism, you're part of the invisible church, you don't need the physical. That's, that's Gnostic in its tendency. Again, yes, sure, you are saved by grace through faith alone, but you're denying the outward covenantal sign of baptism. You are saying the only thing that matters is what's in your heart, where God says that all that matters are both the heart and the outward fruit. He created it all, and he said it's all very good, which is why in the early church they had this doctrine of extra ecclesia nola salis, and why it was very rare in those days, like exceptionally rare, to meet a Christian who wasn't baptized and wasn't part of a church. So if you are a believer today, and if you're unbaptized, then I call you to repent and to be baptized. And if you're not part of a church, then this needs to be a serious consideration for the sake of your souls. Next, we see the baptism of Jesus himself. He himself goes to John to be baptized in the River Jordan. Like how all the Jews had to cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land, Jesus brings the ultimate fulfillment of that here. We will see at different parts through the gospel that Jesus repeats or echoes the Jewish history. Why? Because Jesus is true Israel. He perfectly fulfills everything that Israel should have been and should have done. And if we are baptized in him, and if we are in him, then this perfection is then imputed or given or accounted to us. So here, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, like how the Jews crossed through the river to enter the promised land. And at this baptism, we see something amazing happen. The Trinity reveals itself. Imagine being there. You're standing ankle deep on the side of the river in the water, waiting in line for your turn for John to come and baptize you. As you've heard from the family and friends, uh, he's out there and he's doing this. And they finally pestered you enough to get out there. And you had the afternoon off, so why not? Now you've already seen 14 other people get baptized ahead of you and you've been there for almost an hour. You're waiting. Has all of Israel really come out? You're getting impatient. Can't John do this faster? Come on, maybe just go quicker. Maybe, maybe have people helping. And then there's this Jesus guy. Whew. He's in the water now. And there seems to be a little extra commotion about him. Something about tying on sandals or a new sacrifice of the lamb or a new kingdom. You're not sure, you're not paying attention. You just know that this is slowing everything down. And you're afraid you're going to be late for dinner if things don't go quicker. What is all the hubbub about this guy anyways? But then, as you're looking around for an escape, suddenly, the sky opens up. Bright light shines down upon Jesus, illuminating everything. 
The only word you have to describe it is like this guy is being torn, broken open, like some clothes being ripped or curtain being forcefully pulled apart into two pieces. The sky is divided, rended. If you have lived in this desert your whole life, you're used to the sun beating down on you. But this is different. This is spectacular. This puts last year's heat wave to shame. Never seen anything like it before. Then you hear a voice, like thunder, booming from heaven. This is my son. Who's saying that? Where is that coming from? My beloved son with whom I am pleased. It echoes over the land and through your ears. You can't believe what you are hearing. Then you look at that Jesus guy again. And he's getting out of the water. You see the dove landing upon him and resting peacefully. Almost like the dove and this Jesus guy know each other somehow. Now you know something is different. Something has changed. This is exciting. But you have no idea what it means. Besides, is this Jesus guy really something special? Because his baptism was something special. What you wouldn't know as a bystander is that God, all three persons of God, are active and present here. The Son is in the water, the Father booming from heaven, the Spirit ascending like a dove. This is great evidence against the heresy known as modalism. Modalism teaches that there is one God in one person, and sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. We see here that this is clearly false. All three persons are cooperating, coexisting at Jesus' baptism. We know that God exists in three persons at the same time, eternally. There is never a moment when God wasn't three persons in one. And that is great. And there's love in this trinity. Explicitly, the Father loves and is pleased with the Son. The Spirit descends upon Christ, implying that all three persons share this love and share this pleasure for each other from eternity's past. And the early church even evidences this triune understanding. The early church's very worship and liturgy was triune in nature. Right? In fact, their baptism, they dunked people three times. Father, Son, Spirit. Their liturgy was triune. So anyone who says the Trinity tradition does not go all the way back to the earliest church is just wrong. Right? The Trinity was part of the liturgy and the teaching from the earliest days. But what else do we see here? We see, by Christ's baptism, that our faith in Christ is not misplaced. Right? What, what is this title? Son. The, the voice from heaven, this is my son. What does that mean? It's God's declaration of Jesus. But does it have any precedent? How are we supposed to know what it means? Well... Let's first look at Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen, which means my Messiah, my King, my anointed, in whom my soul delights. Sounds like his baptism. With whom I am well pleased. And I have put my spirit upon him as the spirit, as the dove, descends down. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So this passage, Isaiah 42, echoes 
what happens at Jesus' baptism. Here we have the declaration of God that Jesus is a servant of his, with one that he is pleased, one that is chosen, one that's anointed, and he has placed on him his spirit. The parallels to this verse is uncanny. It seems to be a clear prophecy of Jesus' baptism. And here it says that God will bring justice to the nations through this servant. God will bring justice through this servant. If you are a Christian being persecuted, isn't that comforting? Now look at the name Son. We, we, we have sung and read Psalm 2 this morning. Psalm 2 verse 7 says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We have a God declaring the sonship of his servant. And his son will go to all nations, to the ends of the earth. And just as we saw in that Isaiah passage, God's servant will have all the nations. He will bring justice to all the nations. And here we see that he does so because God the Father has given all the nations to him. Now, many scholars think this declaration of Jesus and his baptism from the heaven is a combination of Isaiah 42, what we read in Psalm 2. And it does seem to fit well. It comes together nicely. Here, Christ is getting baptized. It's the start of the new kingdom, one where all nations will be given to him, where, where he will bring justice. And I said last time, Jesus, being the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah, is God's chosen King. But here is something more. We know that our faith in Jesus is not misplaced. We know it's not misplaced because God the Father is pleased with him. He is his very son. He is loved. He is approved. He is the one where the Father says, yes, listen and obey him. So if we follow Christ, we then have the promise of God that that faith will not be in vain. Imagine how encouraging that would be to the persecuted church. Here, they are facing down Caesar Nero, but they have hope. They don't despair because they follow God's very son, and they know that they are on his side. We are following God, one who will inherit the nations, bring about justice to the ends of the earth, This would be edifying if you are facing injustice. This should be encouraging if you're facing persecution. You can be confident that following Jesus, you are in fact following God's will. That's such an encouragement from his baptism. And you also have confidence that Christ will save and protect you for now and all eternity. After all, you are part of his church. Now, the next part of the text is Jesus' temptation. It says, immediately after the baptism, the Spirit drove Christ out into the wilderness. Right? Now, the Gospel of Mark has a really truncated version of this. He says, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So we have a correlation now. We have a correlation to the baptism and the parting of the River Jordan with the Jews. And now we have a correlation where Jesus spends 40 days in correlation to the Jewish 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Right? That is there. 
Jesus fulfills everything perfectly as a Jew. He went into the wilderness and he was tempted, yet he didn't sin. Jesus was tempted by turning stone into bread. So he was tempted by physical need. Right? Then he was tempted to worship Satan. Why? Because he gets all the kingdoms of the earth. Right? Satan tempted him with worldly glory and idolatry. And he was tempted to test God, to throw himself down and force the Father to send angels to save him, to test God, to do something foolish. This lines up with the different temptations of the Jews. The Jews often complained about food. They asked for meat. They complained about the manna. Right? The Jews created and worshipped an idol right, of the golden calf and said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Right? And the Jews tested God. They required a miracle. They said, God, prove it to us. The temptations that Christ passed are the same in nature of the temptations that the Jews had. Jesus was able to withstand all the temptations, even from Satan himself. Jesus is a reliable Savior, and if you follow him, you will not be disappointed. He is righteous, sinless. He understands justice and righteousness perfectly. So his 40 days in the desert was the perfect execution of the Jewish 40 years in the desert. And just as he was baptized in the Jordan, similar to how the Jews went through the Red Sea. What is interesting here is that the Spirit, it's the same Holy Spirit that just descended as a dove. It's the Spirit that is within all of us. It's the Spirit that gives us our gifts. It's the Spirit that drove Christ into the wilderness. This is a great reminder that the trials that Jesus faced were ordained by God. Right? He did not face and will not face anything that is not ultimately from God. The same is true with us. We have a God who works all things out for the good. Right? And he will ultimately overcome all of our trials. He's not surprised by anything you're facing. The Spirit drove Christ out. God has ordained our problems. He's not surprised. Hebrews 4.15 says this, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Here we have Jesus facing temptation and overcoming temptation. And God relates to us. Christ can show us sympathy even in our trials. In fact, he has ordained them. Let this be an encouragement to us that even our bad days, if you're in Christ, are still under the protective hand of God. God is still with us. He who successfully navigated each of his temptations, Christ, is a comfort to us. What is interesting here is the ministering of the angels and the mention of the wild animals. First, we see that God never truly abandons his people. He never truly leaves them, right? Even though Jesus was being tempted by Satan himself, even though he was in the wilderness, the hot, dry, arid desert, and even though Jesus was fasting for 40 days, even though he was out there all by himself, God ensured that he truly was never alone. God sent angels to minister to him. 
Hebrews 1.13 through 14 states that angels are lesser than Christ, but also that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who inherit salvation. God sends angels to protect you. Just as God did with Christ, ministering to him, the early Christians and us can have confidence that God is with us, even as we face problems and as we face persecution. God never actually leaves us alone, and he's always with us, even until the end of the age, and he sends his angels to minister to us. Now you have this interesting question of the wild animals. Now compared to the other accounts of the temptation of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, or Matthew Luke, and John, Mark is the only one here to mention the wild animals. Now, has your brain ever got stuck on something? Like, like you couldn't let it go? Even something small is not a big deal. You just couldn't stop thinking about it? That was me with this detail of the wild animals. Why? Why are they here? What did, what, why did Mark add this? Right? But why is this important? What does it mean? And I've read several commentaries on the issue. I did a word search. The, the Greek word is therion. What does that mean? I searched the internet for details. I asked trusted friends. I contemplated this and thought on this for far too long. And here's what I can confidently say after all that study. There were wild beasts with Jesus at the time of his temptation. That's what I got. I know nothing. I do not know if they were there aggressively as part of the temptation, as part of the pressure. Well, I don't know if they're there as part of the ministering spirits. It's mentioned in parallel with the angels. And I don't know if they're working for Satan and making things more difficult, or if it was merely a passing comment by Mark to show that Jesus is in fact so far out that there's animals there too. I don't know. And the last one tends to be the popular understanding in modern commentaries. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have a theory. So the next few minutes are Dan theory. My leading is that theiron, the same word, is used uh, for beast that was cursed in the fall in Genesis 3.14. You will crawl on your belly with all the beasts. Now, because of Satan's guilt in the Garden of Eden, he was given a greater curse than the rest of creation. Right? Satan was given a greater curse than the rest of all creation, and that includes his relationship to the beasts. And here, Satan tempted Jesus. But unlike Adam, Jesus resisted. So where Adam fell and the wild beasts were cursed, here, Jesus was successful. And then the wild beasts were with him. And they stayed with him. This is prophesied in Isaiah 43. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, I do not receive it. I will make a way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. Oh, there's a context there. The wild beast will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. This Isaiah passage matches some elements of Jesus' baptism, but it's also a passage of the restoration of not only Israel, but ultimate end. This is a passage of the restoration 
the mention of the wilderness, the presence of the beast, the outcome of the people's salvation and their praise. Salvation is the rolling back of the curse. Right? We sing this on Christmas. As far as the, as far as the curse is found, Christ came. Salvation is the rolling back of the curse. And we might just see that here with the wild beasts. So why do I think this is a possible reference? Well, you have Jesus tempted in the wilderness and Adam in the garden. And in the garden, angels block the re-entrance. So instead of the angel ministering, as he did with Christ, the angels block, as he did with Adam. And Jesus, Jesus fasted, whereas the sin of Adam and Eve were to eat. Satan tempted Adam, and he fails. The devil tempted Christ, and he stood. And the mention of untamed animals in both accounts, and a savior bringing peace to these wild animals. Adam and Satan plunged man into sin, and Christ saves men from sin and Satan. So there are many elements that overlap to give me this speculation, this hypothesis. Jesus is a new Adam, succeeding where Adam failed. And that is evidenced by the wild beasts. Now, when you consider prophecies like Isaiah 11 and the coming of the stump of Jesse and how that will cause a wolf to dwell with the lamb and he will draw all nations to himself, it seems like this could be part of that. Right? Part of the gospel is the rolling back of the curse and the taming of the wild animals could be part of that. So this leads me to two conclusions, if I'm at all close. One, Jesus is being compared to Adam. And unlike Adam who sinned and fell... We can trust in Christ. And he will overcome. He survives all temptations, and we can trust in him. And secondly, this is part of the beginning of the gospel. As such, it is Jesus rolling back the curse, part of the gospel. Jesus is making all things new, and his relationship with the wild beasts is the sign of this, which again means that we can trust that all of our sin, that all injustice, that all wrong treatment, that all tyranny, all oppression in the world is being corrected in Jesus Christ. We can look to and put our future hope in knowing that Christ is undoing the effects of the fall. So no matter how you view this wild beast, this text is communicating that the Spirit drove Christ into temptation, Christ resisted Satan, God never truly abandoned him, and therefore, we can trust Christ as our King and as our Savior. He has proven himself. He is stronger than even the devil. And God will never abandon those who believe in Christ. Just as God has sent ministering spirits to Christ, he will minister to us. So this brings us to verse 14, the final part of our text. Now John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time has fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Here is Jesus saying the kingdom is near, it is coming, it is imminent. He says it twice, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. It's right here, you can feel it, you can grab it. So here we have the timing of the kingdom. It started in Jesus' day. Not only an eschatological reality pushed far into the future. Yes, that is true. But rather, and also, it has begun in the time of Christ. We are now in the kingdom age. And this is interesting to consider. Going back to last week. When we consider the term gospel, we think of it as the gospel proper. 
the message of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And this is great. This is appropriate. Paul defines it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel proper. The gospel is what we are saved from our sins by the works of Christ in accordance with the scriptures. Amen. But we see the gospel preexisted this definition. As Jesus could preach the gospel even before he went to the cross. So what does this definition imply? That if the gospel is defined biblically outside the, the proper definition, then what is it? What is it in this text? The text says, repent and turn from your sins. Know that you are a sinner. Know that you broke God's law and it's time to start having obedience to Christ. And that's because there is a new king in town. Jesus is bringing a kingdom. It is at hand. And you want to be part of this new kingdom. So you should hit your wagon up here. This is the new king. He is from God. He can be trusted. I've heard it put this way. There has been a revolution. There's a new king on the throne. Repent of your sins and come peacefully. Otherwise, you will find yourself an enemy of the state. And this new king will come. And anyone who is not found loyal to him will be treated as a traitor. This is what Jesus is calling the gospel here. There's a new king. There's a new kingdom. Therefore, turn away from your old loyalties. Turn away from your sins and follow this new order. Becoming a loyal citizen of this kingdom is free. Just repent. Believe. And Calvin says at this point, that's the good news. What is the gospel to Calvin here? Because God undertakes to govern all his people, which is true and perfect happiness. So just as the death and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel, the reign of Christ in his kingdom, in his rulership, is likewise good news. By obeying his rule and his law, according to Calvin, we can experience happiness. We can have a joy of perfect obedience. Uh, we can have that certainly in heaven and eternity, but we can have a sample of that now, sample of that joy now, as we follow and believe Christ. Calvin is challenging a widely held assumption here, even when I held when I was first saved, that the rule of Christ is just not fun. It's not good. Well, I became a Christian, now I can't do the fun things. That if you repent and you believe, your life will somehow be worse. But Kelvin is saying that true and perfect happiness comes from obedience. Right? It's a blessing from God as he governs and lords over all his people. Don't walk away with your head down if you're a Christian. Have joy, hope. Calvin says perfect happiness. Following Christ should not be portrayed as a burden. But following Christ is a pleasure. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it is service. And yes, it is sacrifice. But yes, it is worth it. It is our delight. That is one of the best testimonies you can give to those around you. Your friends, your family, your children. Show them that following Jesus is worth it. And that it's joyful. So the, mess, the gospel of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, is the message of Jesus. It was the same message John had. We see in, in verse 4 that he was teaching baptism. So both John the Baptist and Jesus were saying that we need to turn from our sins and become members of this new kingdom. The difference being that John looked forward to Jesus' coming. And Jesus said, it's here. It's at hand. I am the king. And here is the kingdom. Now we'll see this again later. Uh, John was arrested. Uh, his calling people to repent is what cost him his freedom and ultimately his life. 
In today's world, we're often asked if Christianity, if it's primarily a masculine or feminine religion. Basically, should the heart of a Christian be more passive and empathetic and soft like a woman, or more bold and strong and masculine? The answer is yes. There is time for both. But John the Baptist is willing to preach a gospel of repentance, God's law, his reign of his son, and to do so with authority, even against tyrants, and be willing to die for this. Christianity is ultimately a strong religion. It has a strong moral compass. It should be uncompromising in these ethics. And we are called to proclaim and defend these truths, just as Jesus and John did. So as we close... Let's go back to our opening question. Who is this new king? And how should we respond? If we respond to a president, how do we respond to a king? We have seen that we are called, each of us, to repent and turn to Christ, to live in his kingdom. This was a proclamation of John the Baptist and the gospel message of Christ. And this is a great thing. Jesus can be trusted. He overcame all of Satan's devices. God approved of him at his baptism. He is God's chosen and anointed king. He was foretold by the prophets. All nations are given to him, and he will bring justice to them all. As early Christians could have confidence as they faced persecution because of this message, they could stand against Rome because of part of the unstoppable kingdom. We likewise, by trusting in Christ, are members of this kingdom. The average earthly empire lasts around 250 years. Christ has been building his church that has changed the world for now over 2,000 years. So our problems are real, as the problems for the first century Christians. We need to properly face the challenges given to us by God. But we can have confidence. We can have hope. We can believe in God regardless. Just as the Spirit drove Jesus into the desert temptation, God is sovereign over things in our life today. And ultimately, we have confidence in Christ for his protection and his promise for the world to come. So in whatever you might be facing, trust in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I say with those who said long before me, repent, be baptized, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we trust in you, as you build your kingdom through your perfect son. It's an amazing thing that you're rolling back the curse through him. May your spirit help us have confidence and boldness as we look to your sovereignty in all things and keep in our minds that in your good graces you are building a kingdom that will last forever. Use the gifts you have given us to serve each one, to serve you, Lord, to serve your church. As we partake in this meal together, may it be a reminder that we share in this meal at the full consummation of our Now we say that table this morning we'll be reading from Hebrews 10 chapter 10 19 through 23 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of God 
Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The sacrificial work of Christ grants to us a supernatural confidence. He has created a new and living way to draw near to God for us. We no longer are outside the veil, separated from the holy place, kept at a distance from God. But we have been united with our Lord in his sacrificial work, and through his body and blood, we have access to the Father. Our confidence is based on the reality that our Savior is a living sacrifice. He is currently reigning in heaven as king and interceding for us as our high priest. And he has washed us with pure water. As verse 23 states, let us hold fast to that confession of our hope without wavering. For we have hope in a risen Savior, our faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. We invite to the Lord's table this morning all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation. The gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.